This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger's been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Happy New Year. Con Giovanni, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. It's the history of the Tottenham. I have nothing to say. I'm so sorry, I have nothing to say. The World Cup 2022 qualifiers have gotten underway and already, after only one game, the English are complaining about having to play San Marino. Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast. I'm your host, Second Harriet, and joining me is Andrew Conway. Hello, Declan. Andrew, why are the English so annoying around the international break? Because when you come to the point where you don't have any kind of drama or any kind of thing to get you excited, you're kind of looking for problems where they don't exist. If you don't have problems, you make them up. And that's what this is. It's the attempt at a creating of narrative. It comes up every, every single qualifying campaign. And you'll find that at the only times it didn't happen is when England were struggling in qualifying campaigns. You heard nothing about, oh, the minnows having to play England back in around France 98 or Euro 2000 or World Cup 2002, South Korea, where England struggled in qualifying. Um, and indeed, in 2008, when England struggled in qualifying, they, the, you'll find that a lot of the talk of them having to play minnows kind of uh, evaporated when they failed to qualify for Euro 2008 under Steve McLaren. It's just something that happens because they're bored and they have nothing else to say and oh, they think they're better than everybody else. They're not alone in that. In that and it's not, it's not something isolated to England and it's not something isolated to football. It happens in a lot of spheres and realms you, you don't think you're you don't think you need to stoop down to the level but we, we've seen in other matches that have happened over the weekend and last week indeed that uh given time some of these minnows some of these teams that people don't think much of can actually turn up and give a performance uh worthy of playing these great players yeah because the the point you touch on there of like creating problems when there aren't any, I think really actually is a good way to put it for in terms of England anyway. And you're right that, you know, this is Germany have complained about playing Samarine in the past. This isn't just isolated to England, but obviously, you know, it's easier for us to access English speaking press and all that. So we can only speak about that. But before they even played Samarino, the few days before that, they'd still built up like, why isn't Trent Alexander-Arnold in the squad? Oh my God, this is a complete... This is madness. Like, he's really good. He's a right back. Why are we playing other right backs? And it's like, okay, he's not had the greatest of seasons or whatever. You know, Reese James is pretty good. Uh, You know, they have actually got a lot of strength and depth in that very specific position. It's kind of a strange quirk, I suppose, of just how big English football is. Eventually, you end up just being really strong in one position. And right now, that's right back. And, you know, Alexander-Arnold missed out. But... Like, at the same time, if he had come in and he had played and he hadn't played well, then it would have just been the reverse of, oh, why did he pick Trent Alexander-Arnold? He's not playing that well for Liverpool. Like, they they will just make a fuss over absolutely nothing. and They have to fill the column inches. Mm, but, like, why can't they just accept the fact that, you know... They have a game coming up. It's just so bizarre. Like, uh, you know, we don't really. It's it's also the fact that when considered that around them they've got Scotland, who right now have qualified for the Euros, but in general the last twenty years have struggled. Wales, who you know aren't the biggest footballing nation, uh, obviously had a no. success in the Euro twenty sixteen, but otherwise haven't qualified for a World Cup since the fifties. Mm. Uh, and then Ireland and Northern Ireland, who are both their own kind of mess. It just reads as like completely 
like a, a complete lack of self-awareness when there's so much better off than the countries that are actually around them and kind of you, you know obviously there's the uk and then there's ireland and those those countries are not related to each other at all, but we can all see how the other is doing. Like we know how Scotland's doing. We can see them. It's not very difficult. Yeah. We know England are good. We know they're going to qualify. We know they'll have a fine Euros or whatever, and that <laughs> there is no jeopardy in their qualification for the World no. Cup. They, they could they just act like uh, you know we can actually see them. You know if, if it was all contained within England, I suppose I wouldn't mind as much because we wouldn't have to see it. But when complained about having to play San Marino is just so elitist that it just really rubs you the wrong way. Yeah, it's not, it's not nice to San Marinans, Marinans, whatever the actual terminology is. It's not nice to anyone who receives it, but like I said, the, they they can have their complaints to so people can do what they, they're going to do and they can make the noise and be snobbish or elitist, but you know, the there's some great swings and roundabouts in the game of football and you have to be careful where what you say because it could always come back to haunt you in the future and you know I'm not saying they're going to go down to the to the minnow level at any time in probably my lifetime but you know you have to be you have to be careful because you know things happen um, and it, it might not always benefit England and it might benefit the likes of San Marino more in the future and you you know the you can say what you want I, I, I didn't think England were they were they were playing with San Marino a lot of that match but I don't think they were like in a sport apart from from them, I, I think the the players from San Marino showed the qualities they had in in that game, and 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 they merited their their place on the pitch to represent their country and to aim to get to a World Cup finals. And I think they they had every right to be there as much as England did. And I don't think there should be any like this is the person who I I'm personally for open seating and everything basically, and I have no problem uh, with the likes of San Marino doing their thing. And if it, if it damages the prestige of the English shirt and the, the you know devalues the cap, so be it. Yeah, and this is as well a country that was knocked out by Iceland, a country with yeah. a population of about three hundred thousand from the last Euros five years ago now. So I don't think they can really turn their nose up on playing someone like San Marino, like who, no. who need the experience of playing these big games because like they have the Nations League. I think the Nations League has been quite successful for those smaller for those smaller nations and, and we're kind of seeing that in just some of the results we're getting in this international mm. break. And, you know, San Marino aren't there yet. Maybe they won't be there for another 20, 50 years, maybe. But it's it's all in a process of getting there eventually uh, to because like, it, you know, yeah, it, it, it's hard to really articulate properly because it's just it's just so like devoid of any kind of uh thought as to the other person at the or the only other team at the end of the conversation like it, it just makes Amory the butt of the joke again without any kind of regard for how they feel about it and no one has asked from San Marino about it um which is quite disappointing uh I'd love to know what a what a person from San Marino thinks of the question that they should have to pre-qualify to even have the right to play against England um and you know well, we've, we've talked yeah go ahead well, it's just that's the entire attitude that's led us to this debacle of the Champions League that I know you personally like in terms of its excitement in the in the post group stage and the knockout phase of the tournament. But it's it's what's brought us to a point where who you know there's no Scottish teams in the Champions League, mm. and like Scotland is a country that's won European cups and has won European trophies. And as recently as when nineteen, the early nineties, they had was Rangers in the Champions League semi final. They at least were in a quarter final in the early nineties. 
um, similar for teams from Sweden, teams from other Scandinavian countries, teams from Eastern Europe, like the great, the great former Yugoslav countries, um, the Croatian, the Serbian, the, the Bosnian teams who in, in, in decades gone by were a mainstay in, the, in European football that would routinely upset the bigger European sides that are still in the Champions League these days. They're nowhere to be found even in, in you know, the early knockout stages of the Europa League, let alone the Champions League. And that's because they have to go through all these loopholes and all these, jump through all these additional uh, hoops, even qualify for a pre-qualifying qualifying round that happens in August where the, the big boys come out and they, they play this game that they don't want to play uh, to to secure their qualifications Champions League. And at the same time, the teams they're playing have played, what, three rounds, four rounds of qualifying football to get where they are. Like, we're, we're speaking from Ireland, a country where, you know, if a team gets through one stage of, of a Champions League knockout qual- pre-qualifying round, we celebrate and the match gets up to the biggest stadium in the country usually. And, you know, that's it's it's not a fair reflection on European football, to be quite honest. And I, I would hate to see the the national teams go that way as well because it doesn't have the same financial imperative as club teams. Mm. It should be, it is an exhibition at the end of the day and it should be enjoyed as much. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I, it, to see, like we've already seen it in the club game, as you said, so to see it in the national game as well, where there's this kind of elitism and turning your nose up on people, I think would be very disappointing. And mm. I suppose it would be on brand for the way football has gone the last, uh, the last 20, 30 years or whatever. But, uh, you know, they, they still have to play San Marino one more time. I'm sure they'll have this discussion again when that fixture they comes They still have around. to go to Middlesbrough and get something. That's all that all <laughs> yeah. uh, has to be said about that. Um, but uh, moving on, I suppose we should we should discuss Ireland and how they lost both games <laughs> and uh, how yeah. uh, that, the optimism uh, how quickly that... sank into despair. Well, we should start with the Serbia game at least, which was yeah. on on Wednesday, and that was a better performance. And they got two goals. They scored a goal. Uh, it was a nice yeah. one. They took the lead in that game. They as scored well. a goal. Yeah, it, it does say a lot about the uh, state of Irish football that we celebrate the fact that they scored a competitive goal, which they hadn't done mm. for quite a while. And um, yeah, what what did you make of the the match against Serbia? Well, they set out a game plan. Uh, I think they executed it quite well. The, there was a point in in that first half where I was like, they're not really creating much. Um, they're being fairly solid at the back, but they're not creating much. And that was when Colin, Callum Robinson and 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 George broke into the box and created that chance from really nothing. And and it was a well finished and it was a good move from Ireland, probably their best of the whole match. Uh, if we're being honest, probably the best of the whole week. If we're also being honest, uh, to create that goal, and it's something that's been building for a while. <laughs> you have to qualify this this game, and I know I know Serbia rested players, and a lot of their players would have played a lot more football than the Irish players, and you know that has its good and bad connotations uh, to it. In a normal season, you'd say, "Oh, that just shows you how how shallow the pool of talent is for Ireland," and it still kind of says that, but it also is about. Um, it also has the advantages this season where football is is ever present in everyone's week and a lot of a lot of the Serbian players be playing will be playing European football and will be playing at least three matches every single week almost tournament level football but for the stretch of an entire season so you know it, they can't be at their best and I know Ireland were missing a lot of players and obviously we weren't at our best either um, but there there was a, 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 a there was a gap in quality and class between the two sides no matter what. Ireland did have a few chances of creation, then you'll get those in a match. You'll get <clears throat> the ebb of flow of a match changing and 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 really Ireland taking a, a hold of it. It didn't last very long. They did get a goal during one of those spells in the first half and they did come back a bit 
in one of those spells when they gone 3-1 down in the second half. But, you know, you didn't see any great swells of, of creativity or great, you know, looking at the team and saying, these guys know what they're doing. It did very much feel like a, a cup game almost where you see a, a lower division team playing against one of the higher division teams. And it's just like, you're kind of hanging in there. We can see you can play football, but we're better than you. Player for player, we're just better for you. And yeah, I think that's really how the Serbia game played out. Like they are a sleeping giant in European football and they have been probably for the best part of 30 years at this point. Um, where while some of their neighbours have, have gone on like Croatia to World Cup final, Serbia have kind of languished and never really fulfilled the potential at, at tournaments. And while I don't think this is the greatest collection of Serbian players we've seen even in the last 30 years, player for player, they're still a considerable amount better than Ireland. And uh, it did show that in the end, um, Ireland dealt with some of the pressure quite well. You can say that Travers, a 21-year-old goalkeeper making his competitive debut, could have performed better. But again, he's a 21-year-old playing his competitive debut in a way match uh, in a World Cup qualifier. It's not the it's not the easiest uh, curtain raiser for someone. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's a respectable result overall, considering where Ireland have been in the last 18 months, not scoring many goals, not winning many matches, not competing in many matches. You can say it's a step up from that, but given what happened later on uh, in the weekend, eh, eh, we you know it wasn't it wasn't that encouraging either. Yeah, because I suppose we should move on to the Luxembourg game now, which is the uh, the more important one, I suppose, because they lost to Luxembourg one 0 at home from a late winner from uh, Rod- was it Rodriguez was that guy's name? Yes, and, uh, yeah. Uh, like he's playing, like the, the guy that scored for Luxembourg is playing in the Champions League, and Ireland do not have any players in their current squad that is playing in the Champions League. If they if they had everyone fit, they would have one player who has played in the Champions League this season, and it would be the goalkeeper who subbed in for Allison for Liverpool, Queen Keller. So, in that respect, like this comes back to the conversation about England and San Marino is that I think a lot of people in in Ireland rub their nose up at Luxembourg and kind of said oh well we have to beat this team two or three nil because luxembourg are tiny and they have no footballing yeah. history or whatever but they have quality players in that team like they have players who are playing in the bundesliga and, yep. and other of the top leagues which ireland doesn't really have like we have a couple of players who are in premier league squads but already getting premier league minutes no but most of them are in the championship and you know we've said for a long time now that the players aren't very good at Ireland, and and it's true. Like we were really going through a bad period at the moment, but at the same time, I do feel bad for a lot of these players and Stephen Kenny as well, because really they're the face of a system that has completely failed them. Um, you know, it it was only this time last year, or was it two years ago now that John Delaney? I've completed. It was two years ago now that John Delaney resigned as the FA. Was that two years ago? My God. Um, resigned as the CEO of the FAI and then in the following 24 months it's been scandal after scandal uh, and we knew that John Delaney was well he was terrible at his job was he Um, to put it it kindly almost he was terrible at his job and you know for for a long long time Irish football relied on exporting our players out to England to develop them and to an extent, that still has brought through plenty of players. You know, Aaron Connolly is playing at Brighton at the moment up front. Yeah, he's he's an example of that still being happening today. Um, even Seamus Coleman, to an extent, you know, 
is a, is an example of that working, even though he did come from Sligo Rover, Rovers instead of um, yeah. instead of one of a uh, you know school team. But predominantly, it's you know a player looks decent at sixteen, seventeen, maybe even younger, and goes over to the UK at a moderate level Premier League team, and that's where they grow into a into a player. We don't have players coming through the League of Ireland. Um, because there's not enough money in the League of Ireland, these it's it's much easier for players to go and establish themselves in England and then maybe come back to Ireland if it doesn't work out. So for years we 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 basically you know we we put the we set the workload aside and we're really lazy about it and we said England you do it. And yeah. then the Bosman ruling came in in 1995 and suddenly that was really the big shift because that worked out. You know, in the 80s and 70s and 80s, we players playing for the top sides in England. Yeah. You know, uh, Ray Houghton, Ronnie Whelan playing, winning European Cups for Liverpool. Um, now, the Bosman, then the Bosman ruling came in in 1995, and suddenly it was a lot easier for clubs in England to go uh, to the other places in Europe and bring in players at a much cheaper rate because, you know, the Bosman ruling allowed players to move for free, essentially. Um, and it just made, in general, transfers cheaper at a younger age. Um, so it, 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 the globalization of world football also occurred at that moment, um, or the beginning, I suppose, of the globalization of football. And, and once England realized they didn't have to sit around Ireland, they could go much further afield. They actually were finding much talented players on top of that, um, because you know those other countries had built in uh development systems to bring in players you know at a much larger rate and to do it domestically themselves so you know our reliance on on english football you know the the pants was pulled down on us there essentially and no one reacted to that no one did anything differently you know we just kept on doing the same thing hoping the same few players would slip through the cracks essentially and actually make it in England. And, you know, it's been happening less and less. And that's led to us having a pretty mediocre team for a finish. And really this, I saw people describe it as, you know, it can't get any any lower than this. And it definitely can. And it definitely will. Because there's no one in charge to change any of these things. So we're stuck just kind of going through the same motions and as time goes on, there's going to be even fewer and fewer players slipping through the cracks uh, and actually breaking through the broken system and getting into essentially the England, you know, still is our beacon of hope as players go off to England. And, um, you know, maybe we'll end up because the pipeline of English talent is so large, we might end up reverse engineering a few Irish players in through that way as well. Um, like there are two, that's our two pronged strategy approach at the moment. And it's not good enough. It's not modern enough at all. And, uh, you know, inevitably we were always going to end up losing to Luxembourg or, or someone like Luxembourg, yeah. uh, a team that is actually doing something to improve, whereas we are not. Yeah, the defeat to Luxembourg is a, <clears throat> excuse me, is a symptom. It's not a, it's not a ailment in itself. It's not, the, it's not the problem in itself. It's just something. It's just another bump along the road. Like, I know what you're saying about John Delaney. He deserves some of the credit for the for the shambolic nature of the FAI, but he's not the only one responsible. Mm. This is something that's existed for a long time. Liam Brady will talk about it from the eighties and late seventies about the, the the mess that they played. And Roy Keane, obviously most famously in the nineties and early two thousands, you know, spoke out extensively about 
the way the FEI was run and how shambolic it really was. But even you go back to John Giles and Eamon Dunphy in the 60s and 70s talking about how ridiculous the the running of, of Irish football was and has been mm. and stuff like that. Like and, and those individuals, maybe not, some of them aren't the best examples of, of, of football brains either because they wouldn't, you know, they, they speak about football men and they speak about the the um kind of dichotomy and complete irony of of, of existence that it, there is in a football man who must you know hate the likes of of Stephen Kenny for not making it abroad but also love them because they're they stuck at home and they stayed and they roughed it up and they got through all the suffering with everybody else um that that's the kind of dual nature that exists in Irish football like you spoke of Ray Houghton a guy that didn't come through any Irish systems from Glasgow as far as I remember or if if I'm he's definitely Scottish anyway and you know that was great a, a great stroke pulled by Irish by the FAI and that's something that always continuously happens in the FAI they pull strokes they get a sponsorship deal they they may build a stadium with some rugby players they manage just to cling on to power for for 20 odd years but it's not the it's it's not what's going to work forever it's been daring to catch up on them for decades now and it's starting to catch up. I, I agree with you. This isn't the end. This isn't the bottom. This isn't rock bottom by any stretch of the imagination. It's not something that started five years ago when when Ireland beat Austria, the last big victory, I think, in a, in a qualifying game. It's not something that even even became apparent when, when Steve Staunton or Giovanni Trapattoni were in charge of the Ireland team. It's something that's been endemic in, in the side for a very long time. Golden generations, as they're called, in the late 80s, early 90s under Jack and... And subsequently, with Robbie Keane and Damien Duff and and the like, kind of and Roy Keane paved over a lot of the cracks in the system. But now they're really coming through. There isn't any world class players coming through. If they are, they're they're mostly taken from foreign systems, where you know the likes of Declan Rice or, or Jack Grealish, and they were they were what we were pinning our hopes to. They both won Player of the Year trophies, um, which is kind of crazy when the amount of football they had played at the time when they won those trophies for Ireland. Um, but now we're we're starting to see the results of everything. Like there's a couple of bright sparks, maybe some of the some of the influx of people into the country in the last twenty years is as providing a fresh bread of talent, but it's still not being coached properly. There is some very loyal, enthusiastic people around the country who do their best for things. They they do their coaching badges, they support on their own time and their own book. They support local football and soccer for young boys and girls. But overall, it's not joined up enough. I don't think it is a case that you could throw money at it and make the problem go away or build a centre of excellence like Claire Fontaine or, or do something like throw everything behind behind the youth system in, in one of the clubs like they did with Old Farm back in the day. It, it, it's probably beyond repair at this point. And, and really, I'm not sure if there is a way that current management or even anybody they could put in charge either of the FAI or in charge of the national team or the national team setup could do anything to to fix this like it's it's just the system isn't producing enough it's not looked after enough the domestic league isn't isn't flourishing it isn't being cherished it's competing when it should be working collaboration with other sports in the country there is no reason why the likes of soccer and rugby and GAA and other field sports as well couldn't coexist together but they they fight with each other on a constant basis for funding for time for airtime um, for you know, public uh, appeal or or for being in people's m- mind share, and th- they really should work together because uh, like a rising tide raises all boats, and if we get more people involved in sport, if we manage each of these sports on a consistent manner, so that you know in one county or one part of Ireland, 
if you want to play GEA or you want to play soccer or you want to play rugby or you want to play anything else, they're each given equal footing within the community and not, you know, relegated because of oh, age old funding debacles. You know, the, these things should be there for the community first and foremost, and they're not. And everything else should follow. And it doesn't because of that. Yeah. And your point on that, you know, this isn't specifically John Delaney's fault, I suppose. It's the fact that when Ireland, it became obvious we'd reached a point of no return and had to do something different. John Delaney was the one in charge and John Delaney was the one that didn't do anything about it. But you're right, he wasn't the one that, that started the, the decline. He was the one that was in charge of arresting mm. the decline um, more so. And he, he failed to do that. And instead, well, um, I suppose we don't need to go into too much detail about him. Um, but yeah, things let's just say things didn't go well under John Delaney. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a, like there was a time there where the FAI almost ceased to exist and you, you look at it and you wonder like, would we have been better off completely starting from scratch, starting, starting from the absolute bottom and working our way up. And really the only argument against it that I can think of is there would be too many good people who would lose their jobs over that. Yeah. And it would have been sad. Um, and they would have yeah. been unfortunate victims when they wouldn't have deserved it. And, uh, I hope those people who who truly like care passionately about Irish football are the ones listened to and the ones that we, we work with to improve things because there are plenty of people out there who are doing a great job to to help Irish football. Like if it wasn't for some of those people, we wouldn't have even gotten an Aaron Connolly say. So there's plenty of good people out there. They're just not in the position to do a whole lot about it. Like you even just talk about like um, Brian Kerr is an obvious one who um, really went off on the FAI on Virgin Media after the game. And, you know, he, he, he had a quote where he said, you know, the FAI don't listen to me. They never have listened to me. Um, but really they should be. And, and like you can see how passionate he is and how knowledgeable he is about Irish football and he was just neglected after let go after he was let go as, as Ireland manager in two thousand six, and like that's just another example of how we ended up in this position because the right people weren't listened to, the right people weren't put in charge. Instead, it was mates of the people in power put in charge. People, yeah, it was all about spinning money, lining their own pockets, and inevitably this is this is where it was always going to lead to and I, and I go back to my original point and that's why I feel bad for Stephen Kenny now who was a bit of a sitting duck in this position because like would any other manager really be doing much more with this team like Mick McCarthy got a couple of better results but the performances were worse those games were close against Gibraltar and Georgia they could have gone the other way like we could have easily under Mick McCarthy lost to Gibraltar yeah. and lost yeah. to Georgia um instead he got the lucky bounce of the ball and, and we won those games and, and now and again these are close games they've lost by one goal to serbia they lost by one goal to luxembourg you know in another world out there where maybe the players aren't as injured as they are right now yeah. again we're playing our third we have a first string goalkeeper or we have yeah Matt Doherty went down injured in that game as well he's, he's one of our best players he's one of our few players playing in europe even though he's had a bit of a difficult season for Tottenham. And those players are out as well. Like in a world where everything is fit and ready to go, maybe the bounce of the ball goes our way. And 
you know, Kevin Callagher makes those couple of saves against Serbia and we win that game 1-0. Or, you know, uh, we we score that chance that we had at 0-0 against Luxembourg. You know, that's, that is football. It's a low-scoring sport. You're going to get close games that could have gone either way. And then sometimes those close games go against you consecutively and it looks worse than it actually is. And because, again, I think those performances were okay. I think Kenny did make mistakes, but, you know, he's he's got to be allowed to make mistakes. You know, we can't have the perfect man in charge. And, yeah. you know, we're seeing something from Irish players on the pitch, which is more than we could have said under Mick McCarthy when it was just completely dour. And it was depressing to watch for so many reasons. So, in a way, like, Kenny, that's that's going to get forgotten with Kenny because they lost to Luxembourg. They lost to... Serbia and lost all those games in, in the Nations League as well. So, you know, if he were to get sacked, I think it would it would be harsh, not because the results have been poor, but just because he's been put in such a difficult situation. Yeah, I agree. Like I've I've seen a lot of comment and conjecture this morning about how he should never have got the job that he was the last appointee of of John Delaney and the sour taste in your mouth is still left there from from that and. You know, maybe he should have the all every every deal and contract that John Delaney wrote should be should be you know passed up at this point now, ripped up and torn to shreds. Um, but uh, you know, I I don't know who else could come in and do a better job than than Stephen Kenny at the moment. Who could Ireland attract? Who could Ireland afford? Remember, one of the main the main uh, advantages of hiring Stephen Kenny is that he was by far a, the cheapest option available to the FAI at the time. And continues to be for it a cash-strapped organization, bringing in the likes of you know a Sam Allardyce type character at this point. You know he might beat Luxembourg or not lose to Luxembourg, but it's not going to solve the underlying problem. Like I admire what Stephen Kenny is doing on the footballing side of things, and I'm I'm happy enough if he continues to try and play football with them. Um, if if in the if in the long run we don't qualify for tournaments, it's a, it's an unfortunate reality we'll have to face, and it's something we don't like. But at least. We're not, you know, we're not trying to solve two wrongs or we're not trying to make a right out of two wrongs because sacking Stephen Kenny at this point, I don't know what it would achieve by setting us back again. Um, that said, I do understand, you know, the results have not been good enough and I, he'd probably be one of the first people to say it, but going out and being magnanimous and saying it's a disgrace to Irish football and all that, I, I don't think that either. I think a lot of the players went out with almost rehearsed uh sound bites about how you know it's a disgrace and it's a shame in Irish football and the players are disappointed and all that sort of stuff it's yeah may, that may be but lads this is where we are you know I read that point I think I sent it to you earlier about the the centre forward for Luxembourg plays for time you know Kiev in the Champions League or has played in the Champions League this season while Ireland's centre forward plays for Luton Town and you know I don't think it's any disgrace to lose to a Champions League rated with players from the Champions League against you know what we have in Ireland it's that's the level we're at now. We are, and it, we we've we've been flattering ourselves for a long time. We've got to look the green a lot of, a lot of time in, in in the last ten years, and it's really you know jettisons towards qualifying for those two European championships. Well, we've been nowhere near World Cups, deservedly so. And um, I think whenever we've played against our local rivals, at least in the last ten years or so, if I if I'm correct, they've really shown us up to be kind of substandard footballing sides. A bit of luck against Scotland, a bit of luck against Wales. And qualifiers really helped us through. But when I remember watching, I think Ireland playing Scotland, maybe under Martin O'Neill, uh, mm. the first time around, and Scotland just bossed us off the field. 
I think there was a young Andy Robertson playing. There was, you know, Stephen Naismith, I think, was still going strong for them in that in that team. And they destroyed Ireland and really like, gave them a footballing legend lesson. And, you know, Scotland are no great shakes either. So it kind of just gives you a... I think that was a, a wake-up call for me in a lot of ways. Uh, but I think everyone else is slowly waking up as well to the reality that we live in. And then just finally in the news, there's just this quote from Jose Mourinho that I thought would be fun to discuss. Uh, he was asked last week about his critics, to which he responded, I don't think anybody is going to discuss rocket science with the guys from NASA, but everyone around the world thinks they can discuss football with one of the most important managers in the game. And and to that, I would just like to say that if a few rocket ships were to blow up before uh, taking off, I think there'd be questions over... Um, from non-rocket scientists about what NASA were up to if uh, if that were to happen. Yeah, like that's just standard misdirection and um, the kind of the jibe at intelligence that Jose Mourinho is prone to do. He always calls people Einsteins if they have an opinion, if they, you know, they if they put out any sort of original thought, suddenly he, he ridicules them. It's, 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 Classic bully behavior, if I'm being honest, and it's it's nothing surprising from Jose Mourinho, and he's um, yeah, I'm I'm sure a lot of NASA engineers would be happy to hear what you have to say about uh, rocket science, and and be happy to teach you about it as well. But Jose Mourinho isn't one of those people. This kick can decide it all. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we're there. Norway's protest of the Qatar World Cup in 2022 took centre stage this week with the team wearing shirts that read Human Rights on and off the pitch, which also acknowledged Germany's similar shirt-based protests and asked, next? With that, who is next? And what does next even mean? Uh, yeah, like I can see other countries doing this. I can see other countries not doing this. I don't expect France to do it anytime soon, really. I don't expect Spain to do it anytime soon. Both uh, Both countries have had, you know, massive investment uh from uh the middle east in in their major football teams uh, at different points in the last decade or so um regarding other countries in the world doing it you know fair play to the players for taking a stand on this i doubt the fa's approved it in any way um or at least didn't go out of their way to talk about it afterwards um i don't know what the rules would be whether they get fined for having a political message i know it was before the match maybe they'll get away with it I just feel it's it's a case of a, a bit too little too late. Like, I hope it's not too late. And I hope there is positive changes made as a result of, of these protests and more will follow. I just don't see the English or Polish sides going out on Wednesday night and doing a big song and dance about it. And I don't see many other nations joining with them. While if they did, there could be major change. Like, if there was a case that the Brazilians and Argentinians, the Germans, the Spanish, the Italians, the English, the French even the Norwegians, the Belgians, the Netherlands, these smaller nations as well that have power in, in world football at the moment, if they were to join together and make a po- like and make a statement on this, I am full sure that the the tournament, things would change, whether that's uh, conditions of workers, which is unlikely at this stage, but more likely that more likely is that the, the venues would be changed to somewhere else uh, that can handle this sort of thing in a humane way. I don't necessarily see that happening though, because I don't see the appetite there for for a lot of these um, 
countries to really risk anything by by going after FIFA in this in this very public way. I think the game will be better if they did. But as I said, the courage is a courage is a very uh, sought after trait in the modern era of of the game, and I don't see many other countries doing it. Yeah, because uh, the Netherlands as well, I believe, are planning to do something for their final game, um, similar kind of just wearing a shirt and acknowledging um, the the issue going on. And it's such a difficult spot, I find, for the players because, you know, what can they really do? Like, um, it, it's a World Cup. Like, they, they build their whole career around getting to play at the World Cup. This is the dream of so many young children around the world is to play at the World Cup and only a select few ever actually get to do it. So for them to be asked to boycott a World Cup is is a pretty big deal, I find. Like, um, you know, you can say what you want about the fact that, that a lot of them are rich, a lot of them are millionaires and they have very few problems in their lives or whatever. I, I, I think that's maybe... That's not giving footballers enough credit, I suppose, because... You know, again, it, it it it's a childhood dream that they're having to set aside here. No money can really replace playing at a World Cup. And we're also, you know, there's there's smaller nations that qualify for the World Cup. Panama qualified for the last World Cup. Those players mm. aren't r- rolling in the money in a way that, say, a, a Premier League footballer is. So I, I don't think we should be considering how much money these players make either in this conversation, especially because it's playing for their country. Um, You know, they... It's their clubs that pay them, not their country. Like them, a lot of the top players donate the fee that they get from their country to a charity of some sort. So, uh, in in that sense, I think money should be left out of this discussion in terms of the players. Obviously, money is a huge part of the discussion in terms of the countries and uh, the FAs and FIFA and all that. And and you have to remember, like this was awarded in what two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. To Qatar, since then, a lot of the people that voted for Qatar have been arrested yeah. or charged and. They're they're either in under indictment, dead, or you know disgraced in some regard. All with charge of corruption uh, relating mm. to the Qatar bid for the World Cup. Yeah, and despite the fact that all those people are gone, nothing has been done to question or query why this World Cup is going ahead in Qatar as of right now. So, like that in itself just shows that they're they're happy to get rid of the old guard but the new guard it was it was kind of just opportunism from the new guard to get rid of the old guys and keep the status quo it wasn't about change it wasn't about bringing in new ideas or doing something different it was about just you know taking your opportunity to stab a guy in the back basically uh yeah. is the way that it comes across anyway um and that goes right to the very top with Shiani and Valentino replacing Zepp Ladder uh, who this week was also given a six-year extension to his ban or his football ban or something along those lines. So, mm. um, you know, but, it's... Yeah. It, that in ahead. itself shows you, though, because um, the fact that they had to extend the ban meant that there is a genuine worry within FIFA that if Sepp Ladder was allowed back into the arena he could reclaim his place at the top of the pyramid, even though he is a very elderly gentleman who has been enticed at times by different organizations around the world, has been investigated by the likes of the FBI, um, an investigation that in most fitness and probity uh, checks would render your job application completely uh, useless. He's still in, in, in the midst of, of, of possibly being able to regain 
top spot at FIFA. Like that shows you the fear they have inherently in that organization. But the game is rotten. The ro- it's rotten to the core eh, in that organization. It's it's been no secret. UEFA has its problems. It's nothing compared to what FIFA has. Like w- you can say what you want about American sports, but for the most part, they have to maintain a very strict level, a, a strict code of conduct and a strict kind of impartiality when it comes to the administration of the game. We don't have that in football. We don't have that at all. And until the day comes that that happens, it, really FIFA is a, a bit of a laughingstock uh, in terms of corporate governance. And I think thinking about it, like I've watched sporting documentaries before and they've looked back at the corruption era and, and segregation in sports and different things that have happened over over the last 100, 150 years in, in different realms and in different, in different games. And I think FIFA's corruption is something that's, in in a lot of ways is, has persisted through all of that like it's still going like nearly we're, we're nearly 100 years since the first world cup and we're still nowhere near an organization that can be deemed clean that can be deemed a powerful broker for change and positive broker for change in the world a t- a, an organization shrouded in mystery in doubt in suspicion um and that has despite having you know firm rules against pol- pol- politicizing the game continues to do it on a on a on a daily basis in the in the in the decisions it makes in the countries it chooses to to cooperate and partner with. It's yeah, it's it's not been it's not a it's not a healthy place to be for for world football. And I know we're in a bit of a dour mood after the the week that Ireland have had, but really throwing FIFA into this mix as well. And it, it's no one no one is no one is looking forward to this World Cup. I can't I can't say like. I know what you're saying about, you know, players from Panama and anyone, it's an honour to play at a World Cup. It's a dream for a lot of people to, from, from young childhood to play at a World Cup. But this Qatar World Cup at Christmas, is, is it going to be before Christmas or after Christmas? Uh, because it's, it's scheduled from November 18 to December 18. Yeah, so it's going to be before Christmas and the weather is miserable in Europe and in a lot of the Northern Hemisphere um where it's going to be completely crazy temperatures even though it is been it has been moved to the cooler time of the year to kind of preserve some kind of sense that this can actually go on but if we thought the walking football of the last six months or long, how the last year sorry forgive me I, the last year uh of, of behind closed doors football you thought that was bad like wait till you see the the football that's going to be probably played against in front of very few people in a very small country under immense heat with you know god knows what's going on behind the scenes and yeah it's not it's not going to be an enjoyable event for many of us watching yeah and on that like it, it is another example of player welfare not being considered like it's only in the in the last month two months that we've brought in uh concussion substitutions uh you know there's no room in the calendar at all for players to have any kind of break and you know we've discussed in the past about south american players and how you know, Alexis Sanchez, I suppose, is the poster boy for this. Of their legs are gone at thirty because there's a Copa America every summer, so the players don't mm-hmm. get any kind of break at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were to think between now and the end of Euro 2024, there is no break in the calendar really because you've got the World Cup in Qatar in in 2021 or 2021-22 season, which means that season has to start in July. Uh, and end probably in May. Then at the end of that, there will be uh, starting in Euros uh, qualification campaign, and there'll be uh, the Club Nations World League. Cup. In the Nations League, the Club World Cup is set to start around then as well yeah. in the expanded form that it's going with, and there's the actual Euros in 2024 itself, and there's no doubt going to be more Copa Americas. 
Uh, there's the Euros this summer as well. Like, there's very little rest there for the players. Like, there's one, I think that the summer of 2022 and the summer of 2023, they might have some time off, but that's in the grand scheme of things, very limited uh, when the seasons are going to be stretched out even longer to make room for uh, these World Cup qualifiers and this World Cup itself. Like, you know, um, I've been playing football manager again recently and I got to the point in my save file where it was 2022 and the World Cup came up and it was just terrible. Like, mm. there's just this eight-week gap or seven-week gap where... Uh, I was sitting around waiting for the game to load. But, like, you know, the season started in July. There was no real time for preseason because of how late the other season started. I didn't have time to get signings in. Like, you know, obviously the the real world would be a bit more prepared for, for it than I was, obviously. But, uh, you know, it just showed how tight the calendar is. Like, I was, like, starting in July. I was very confused initially because I forgot it was 2022 in the game and I was like why is the season starting so early oh right yes the World Cup and then the season ended at the very end of May and then um, you know that that save file also didn't have to factor in a pandemic um, that we're all still uh, suffering through at the moment so like there is so little wiggle room and I feel so bad for these players because they are being stretched to their absolute limits uh, and then there was the treatment that I saw from and I know you can have your thoughts on the Daily Mail and how terrible they are really and you know i i study the daily mail for my dissertation i know firsthand how bad some of their articles can be and they it was ian Ladevin wrote a piece on uh, marcus rashford this week and, and i knew this was coming as well and you know obviously in the last 12 months marcus rashford has done some really great work for um, bringing in money and food for poor sick children out there who uh, the uk government have basically abandoned uh, and, you know, he's done a lot of work around that. And, you know, he's got his initiative now to get young people reading through his own writing. Well, his own books, uh, ghost written by Karolanka. And, you know, he, he's done a lot of great work there. And, you know, now he's playing in these um, World Cup qualifiers. And Ian Ladyman basically came out and wrote that, you know, how can he on one hand have uh, a say on the political activism inside the UK and then also compete to... Uh, play in Qatar where people are dying to build stadiums and you know Mark Strasher is a footballer we can't ask him to do everything for us he can't be the person who uh, pays or, or feeds the poor and also is our moral guide on who and where we can play football like it's not up to him where we should be playing the World Cup and you know it's just the fact that like this is one example like this is going to happen to several other players, no doubt, between now and 2022, especially those that try to speak up. Like Tyrone Mings spoke very well on Sky about why he thinks he should be kneeling before matches uh, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, it's in September, they'll probably, if he's still doing that, if they are still kneeling and if he is going to continue to be outspoken about it, like he laid him in, like, what's to stop him going after? Tyrone Mings in September when it comes back around to these qualifiers or even next week maybe um, if he like I don't think he is in the England squad at the moment but if he does make the England squad or if he does actually start playing for England um, you know he will be targeted that way and it's no surprise that these players are also black as well um, that are being targeted instead of the likes of Harry Kane like it just goes into more of the inequality that is being shown through the media in this as well um, you know nothing really against Harry Kane I'm not saying that Harry Kane should be abused by Ian Ladyman or whoever it is at the Daily Mail or the Sun or, or you know, these British tabloids. 
but um, you know these players need to be treated better basically is my point and it feels like they are um, just being kind of tossed aside they are little play toys that we can do what we like with and you know at the end of the day they are still people um, and I do feel bad for them as well obviously you know I go back to the point that they make a lot of money but you know some things are, are more important than money as well yeah you're entirely right and yeah, whatever, whatever about their income, whatever about the the state, like of 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 things in in global football, like you know, attack pieces that are almost ready to ready to print months in advance and just waiting for the right opportunity to do it, the right whatever you want to call it, the right you know way. Like nothing even happened to Marcus Rashford this week. I don't know were they expecting him to crash and burn or something like that, but they they went after him and probably won't be the last time and it's not going to be the last time we're going to see these type of hit pieces on on players especially players of color as it, as it seems to be the the reoccurring trend in, in place of anybody else but it's 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 not been a very uplifting episode of this podcast Declan no I know we uh we do like to uh do that sometimes <laughs> not, by, not 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 intentionally but you know the football world kind of it pokes questions at us, I think, that, uh, you know, or provoke questions that, that we should be talking about. And, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen with Qatar. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not feeling very up for watching that World Cup when it comes around, which is a pity because no. I love the World Cup. Yeah, like there, there's some great novelty attached to it. But the fact that like, a World Cup comes around once every four years, it generally is something different from everything that we've experienced in the previous four years. It has world you know, players from around the world, players you don't necessarily know, teams playing each other that don't normally play each other. And it, it comes after the end of a season. There's a bit of a gap there. It's it's something to anticipate. And in this case, it's going to be in the middle of a season. It's going to be winter in the middle of, of usually what, what is the hotbed of football. And you're going to have a gap then in the summer that's not going to be made up by anything, except for, of course, qualifiers, Nations League matches, things like that. But it's not the same. And it, I, I can't... I can't see it working out for for the better for anybody involved, to be honest. And I think it might be a, a thing that's looked back on not with fond memory. Yeah, um, it's 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 yeah. The world like the World Cup is so exciting. Like even and I suppose this is the last part of this whole thing. And it was actually brought up by Stephen Kenny today. Is like where do you draw the line with Qatar and the fact that we were in Russia four years ago and even America mm. in four in four years after that, like, you know, they had their issues. Um, Stephen Kenny said, where do you draw the line? Do you say, for example, America boycotting the Olympics in Russia, Russia boycotting the Olympics in America? What does that achieve? We're not sure. Years later, we still haven't gauged a measurement of what we actually achieved. Is it the handling? Is it the handing of the World Cup to Qatar initially? Is that the problem? Or should teams refuse to go and players refuse to play? Those are different matters. It's a broader picture than in sport. What other countries do, do you pick and say, you can't do that? Like that is, to an extent, like Kenny is right to kind of ask that question. And, and, and it, you know, Russia has its own problems as well. And I suppose we all kind of, you know, we covered that World Cup. We enjoyed that World Cup, I think, for the most part. And we certainly watched most of the games. Um, But when it comes to Qatar, like they're, do we need to have so many people die to build the stadiums that these players are going to play in? Like, that's not worth it. You know, did that happen in Russia? I, I know people, uh, the figures on that are not as clear, I suppose. And, you know, the, the it happens in the past now, so there's nothing we can do about it. And 
hopefully no one will die building any of the stadiums for America, Canada, or Mexico hosted in 2026. But like, is, is that where we draw the line? Like, uh, you know, people dying to build the stadiums, like what, where do we go there? I suppose. Yeah. yeah it's not, I understand people have trepidation about different world posts. There's no perfect country in the world. There's no country that doesn't have metaphoric or real blood on their hands. And that's, that's been true since the beginning of this, of, of, of the world cup as a tournament, like the moving it around, does it, does it, it, it you know, FIFA, as I said earlier, they, they claim to not be a political organization. It's inherently political. They make choices, they make decisions, they give validation to the countries that they decide to put tournaments in similar to the Olympics in, in times gone by. And, and the Olympics are even more politicized during the cold war. Why we had LA and we had Moscow uh, in subsequent Olympics or the other way around, whichever way it did happen. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's the way things are. That's the way the world works. I, I, I do think like Russia, there, I think there is, there is fundamental issues with how tournaments are given out and it has existed for a long time now. It's not something that's, you can trace back to Russia. It's not something you can trace back to Brazil, not even South Africa or Germany or, or Korea, Korea, Japan before that. It's, it's something that existed time and time again. We, we jumped a level at some point where it went from, okay, can a country, uh, is a country want, does a country want to host a World Cup? A lot of countries do. They said, yes. Are you actually able to host a World Cup? The, the number of countries that are actually able to host a World Cup is a very slim number of countries. FIFA exploited that desire and made teams, made countries learn how to host an international tournament. And generally speaking, it didn't leave those countries with a good legacy. We have stories about Brazil, South Africa before, you know, in the past as well. Other other nations probably should never have hosted World Cups because they weren't logistically capable of doing it. Never mind the politics side of it. That's a different issue entirely. You come forward then to where we are at the moment and you're looking at Qatar, a country that is financially independent and has enormous resources that they can deploy to, to make themselves capable of hosting a World Cup. But the question is, should they be allowed to host a World Cup because do they actually fit the criteria necessary to host it? What is that criteria then? That's, that's the next question. And I, I think that's been completely muddied. I don't know what the criteria is anymore for a team to host a World Cup. Like supposedly because the size of a World Cup, I thought you had to be a country of a certain size with a certain amount of stadia available for it. Qatar certainly doesn't have that or didn't have that compared to the likes of other other bidders, even even the likes of Russia in the past. You know, there, there's countries that have an immense number of stadia that are capable of hosting a tournament of the site, have the support and communication and, and transport links in place already, have a, a vibrant population that is in favour of tourism, that has the resources available to, to, to cope with an enormous amount of influx of people. And it, it doesn't seem that Qatar hits any of those criteria even before anything is brought in about the politics of, of the nation itself and, and then of some of the worker rights issues that have been raised uh, at length and by, by other organisations. So you have to, I think you have to look at Qatar separately than these other countries, because these other countries that have hosted the World Cup, that will host World Cups in the future, have the ability to host these World Cups. They're not, you know, they're, they're not what, what Qatar is. And like maybe Qatar will prove us all wrong and it is the country that they, they aspire to be. But on evidence that's been presented, they don't seem like that way. Yeah, and I suppose the, the final thing that I want to say on this is just that, you know, credit to the Norwegian players and the German players and potentially the Dutch players for actually 
standing up and, and provoking a conversation on this because, you know, we can't just let, um, you know, the build-up to this World Cup come and go and allow for this to be so normalised. Um, so And some of those players are doing it, which could be detrimental to their club careers, let alone their international career. Like, you look at Erling Haaland, you know, a, a huge name such as himself, you know, he's got a a huge profile in the world game. He's got huge potential to become potentially one of the best players of the decade. And he's potentially risking uh, this damaging his club career. Like you look at yeah, the fact that PSG own are owned by the Qatari state and, you know, PSG is probably a club he could have worked for yeah. and, and earned a lot of money from in, in the future. And now he's probably burned that bridge. Yeah, um, I think it's fair to say he's not going to PSG in the future. And it yeah. could be the same for Man City. Yeah, um, very true. Yeah, and I think that is important that we recognize that it's it's great that the players are doing this. Like it does, I think, take some bravery to do that. And they're provoking a question. Obviously, you can kind of look at the third and say human rights. You know, we stand for human rights. It's kind of vague, but like we all know what they're talking about. I think at the end of the day, and it, you know, it's God is talking about Qatar when instead we probably would have just discussed the England squad in some way, which I think would have been. It would have been less interesting to just talk about that than than something that's actually important in 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 this World Cup because the World Cup is important uh, in in the in the grand scheme of football. Obviously, it's unimportant in the grand scheme of everyday life. And if we had to sacrifice the World Cup to survive, we would, um, or most people would, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, I suppose. Uh, so, but it, but the World Cup at the end of the day is important. It's important to a lot of people. It's one of the, it's one of, if not the most watched sporting events in the world. It brings a lot of people together, and for it to kind of be uh, sold out to to a nation like Qatar, um, you know, it, it's something that we can't let come and go. And I think the players have done a good job of that at the moment. Yeah, um, and hopefully it continues. Uh, like I, I am a bit cautious and cynical about it, and I'm not. I believe it's probably not going to achieve a huge deal, but if it does, more power to them. Finally, now we're going to look ahead to the return of club football. Uh, are you excited for the return of club football after a two-week break? It's certainly been a long time coming. You know, you really do feel it when it's out for this long of time. I suppose the international break and the the fixtures therein kind of bring a lot of uh, sadness to the fold in a way that I wasn't really expecting. But yeah, bring it back on, I suppose. And let's get back to this horrible season that, that uh, won't ever end. Again, there's actually two, um, I'm not going to say exciting fixtures because it's hard to really describe anything as exciting right now, but two promising fixtures in Leicester City versus Manchester City on Saturday at 5.30, and then at 8 o'clock, Arsenal welcome Liverpool to the Emirates, and uh, how do you see those two games going out? Uh, you have to... Leicester City, Man City, I can't see anything but Man City rolling on. I think I think they're... They'll have to keep their form going up as they come back towards the Champions League um, and really keep everything ticking over nicely. I think the the international breaks them relatively kind to a lot of their players. They have, they've not been stretched a huge amount, and I think they'll come back relatively unscathed um, to back to their Premier League race. And I, I I don't think Leicester have, as I said before, and I've I've often said it before and talked them down and and thought that their injury crisis would be too much for them to cope with, but 
Um, I, I, I still don't think they'll have enough in them uh, to, to beat Man City in this match. Um, on, on the flip side, on the, the Saturday, later Saturday, because these both are Saturday evening matches, the later match between Arsenal and Liverpool at the Emirates, really like Liverpool have had an atrocious season uh, to this point, um, given how strong they started and how we, like me personally, expected them to, to really kick on. But I, I, they have to really start putting these, the, these teams to the sword and Arsenal being one of those teams. They're ahead of them at the moment. I don't see Arsenal really closing that gap hugely between now and the end of the season. And if Liverpool have any aspirations to get near to the Champions League spots again, of which they're only five points off, you know, so it is it is well within possibility they can do it, given that there's ten matches left or nine matches left. They have to start by winning at Arsenal. And yeah, I think I think they'll have to do it. They've had Jurgen Klopp's had a few weeks to get his his affairs in order and to kind of figure out and approach this match. So yeah, I think Liverpool should should be good for the victory in this one. And with each game, we go a week closer to fans returning to the same, which I'm personally actually very excited about. I think that's the thing I'm most looking forward to at the end of this season. Um, so I think that's good news as well. And the FA, yeah. the the FA announced that they are planning on using the FA Cup semi-finals as test programs as well. So there's still plenty to look forward to. I think for the end of the season, even if the the football has become a bit a bit slow yeah. at the moment, yeah. yeah so um. um yeah, like the I it worries me a bit the 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 rush to return fans to the stadium. I understand it and I feel I feel the need as well to have fans in the stadium. I think it does make a big difference to the the way the players react to events on the field. Um and I think it would provide a much greater um jeopardy in a lot of matches. Um I do worry that the UK is rushing things on, on this matter and I hope they're doing the right thing by doing this and I hope that their the pace of their vaccinations continues to a point where everyone is is roughly satisfied with with how things are going and and that the safe return to to football is 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 right on right o- over the over the what would you say it over the horizon that we're nearly there um but I would approach it with caution and um good luck to the how many is it 20,000 they want to put into the Wembley stadium mm, I think it's 10,000 for the the first Premier League games back as well so like they're starting mm. they're, they're ramping it up I suppose in a way and they've even um, rescheduled the final two fixtures so that everyone will get a home game as well, which I think is quite important because I think it'd be nice to yeah. have every team, especially for teams where, you know, like Leeds have come up and they've had a whole season with no one in. And I suppose then West Brom and Fulham before they go back down, maybe. Yeah, those those teams, uh, very unfortunately, will probably see very few fans in the stadium before they get relegated. West Brom will probably be down before fans get to return. Hopefully Fulham will still be in, at the very least, a relegation fight um, by the time fans get to come back uh, to Craven Cottage. Uh, but, I, I, you know, there's way to the late stages now. This is this is make or break time. It can, it can only get better from here, right? Yeah, like that's, as you started the podcast with the, the notion that, you know, rock bottom hasn't been hit yet. <laughs> you, you've really started to change your tune since then. I, I hope you're right. That's all I'll say. Uh, it's always good to end the show on a positive note uh, and until then thank you for being here Andrew thank you for having me Declan and let's hope for a more positive and enjoyable week ahead yeah we'll we'll, we'll promise uh, well I suppose promise is too strong a word but we'll hopefully yeah. be able to deliver a much more positive outlook next week thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode then don't forget to tell your family and friends about the show spread the word of the Total Football Takeover 
The show can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. You can also subscribe to my own Substack at declanhart.substack.com, where I publish two weekly newsletters that will often go further in-depth on topics discussed during our shows. Those pieces can also be found on Medium at medium.com slash at cheesyheartpun, H-I-R-T-E. You can also follow Andrew on Twitter at Kanban27 and myself at cheesyheartpun. Most of all, thank you for listening and we hope to be in your download feed next week too. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.